Welcome to Pullback, Summer Book Club Edition. Very excited. We're going to be talking about our second book in the series, which is How to Be a Climate Optimist, Blueprints for a Better World by Chris Turner. Should have mentioned this at the top. My name's Kristen Pugh. I'm here with Kyla Hewson. (laughs) (laughs) We're proud members of the Harbinger Media Network of podcasts, (laughs) but we're also on vacation. So like, get off our backs. (laughs) Also, like, I don't know if I introduced the name of our show. This is Pullback. You know that already. You've clicked the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's the thing in the title. If you open your app, you know, you look at the picture. Oh my God. Okay. I'm actually really excited to talk about this book. I, I hated it. So (laughs) I like, I don't love to hate on books. So you, you were so funny, Kristen, because you read this book before, like I did. And you're like, okay, just like a heads up. It's probably not a book we're going to recommend. And you were really like, you were really reserved with your opinion. So I don't know actually what you think of it because you did not spoil anything, but I got angrier and angrier the further I got into the book. (laughs) Um, I don't know. What do you think before I go off on a rant? (laughs) Yeah, let's just to, for folks who are listening to this podcast who haven't read the book, um, essentially what the book is trying to do is it's saying, hey, the climate movement, it's a really big bummer a lot of the time. Um, (laughs) Which is like a fair critique, I would say. (laughs) Not wrong. So he says, if we want to get people on board with fighting climate change, uh, then what we really need to do is focus on the value case. Um, So we need to look at climate actions that make lives better. Lucky us, there's already a lot of stuff that does that. And he also says we have to bring people along relatively slowly. So I think there's a lot of merit to the first argument. He's certainly not the only person that's making this claim. Um, I think it's actually a bit of a shame that we're not doing this at the same time as we're doing Naomi Klein's book, because I think they're both trying to accomplish the same thing, and she just does it in a much different way. But like that on itself is fine. Yeah. The problem with climate action so far is that we really aren't making people's lives better. We're making the lives of most people worse um, in how we're approaching it. And that's not necessarily the case. The incrementalism stuff, I have a lot of problems with it. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. It's it's a book with an idea. The idea is not a bad one. I thought it was fine. <laughs> yeah, like, so the core of it, I, I I appreciate. Like, I like I'm like, okay, I see what he's trying to do. I just... Uh, I mean, okay, so (laughs) I was on a hike yesterday and I hadn't quite finished the book. And um, so I had one of my friends in the car with me read a chapter out loud just to help me kind of cook through it while I was driving. And listening to them read it out loud just made me realize that like, it's just, it was so repetitive. It was like 150 pages longer than it needs to be. It could have been like six articles, you know, like. Yeah, to be honest, the content of this book is an op-ed column in a newspaper. Like that's, yeah. that's the appropriate length. It's not even a, this could have been an article. This could have been a column. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I'm fine with that. Like sometimes I read books and it's like, okay, whatever. I just, I don't know. I was hoping for more, I guess. And I'm disappointed. Yeah. I'm really curious to see, maybe listeners have different perspectives on this book. I think part of the reason you and I didn't like it very much is that I don't think it's a book that's actually for people who are steeped in the climate movement at all. Um, It's not for people who think and read about climate change all the time and are grappling with climate anxiety. I think this book is for 
your centrist friend who sees the climate crisis um, but looks away from it as quickly as they can because actually grappling with climate change could be scary. It really seems like governments aren't doing the work they need to do to actually resolve it. And a lot of times it can seem like the fight is hopeless. So for people who just disengage from like thinking about climate change because of that, that's who this book is for. And I think it does a great job of holding the hand of somebody who doesn't know a lot about what the transition will require and telling them, look, it can actually create a much better world. EVs are great, but public transit's also great. And for that, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I think for the first half of the book, I felt that same way. Um, and then, what, like, I mean, the back half is just re- so repetitive that I think maybe I was just like getting frustrated, like, <laughs> just because of that. But like, also, I don't know. It's just, it reminds me of A Waste-Free World, which we also read for the show, which is kind of a libertarian take on what change is needed. And like, yes, we need to convince people like who maybe, but like, but even people who don't look at climate change directly because it's too scary and too big, even most of those people, like they don't need 12 chapters about Denmark to like... (laughs) And like the, like, that's not necessary. And I just, I I was actually struggling to figure out who this book was for while I was reading it personally, because I was like, I wouldn't give this to like my parents or or any of my friends who like don't engage with climate change, because it's like, it felt like he, he kept saying like, it's okay, the status quo will continue. You're not going to lose your car. You're not going to lose your McMansion. Everything's going to be fine because we're electrifying the grid. And I feel like that was his whole point was just like, let's electrify the grid. And it's like 90% of what he talked about. And I was like, oh my God, this book is like part of the problem. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we can, we can disentangle that a little bit because I think there are some problematic narratives in here, but I think the intention with the book is to take like a certain echelon of people who love to read nonfiction books about like whatever the hot topic of the day is. So who like to sort of be involved in a wide range of policy discussions, but don't know a lot about climate change and are sort of like middle to upper middle class. I think that's who this book is for. Yeah. Um, And for those people, it, I think it is helpful sort to a certain degree Um, Because it takes some of the narrative that like left-wing climate change discourse has about how we need to really be pitching climate action in a way that's not necessarily neoliberal, in a way that does actually improve the quality of lives for all and brings in equity. But it does it in a way that's like non-threatening and non-scary. So in a way, it's almost like that movie that you really like. I think Kyla like. Oh, yes. So I actually, I was, I was actually thinking about 2040 while I was reading this. Cause I was like, why, why is he focusing on Denmark so much when 2040 <laughs> that came out like the same year that this book did more or less, or came out like, I think a year or two before this book, even I'm like, there are so many really cool, like global examples of solutions that he's not touching on at all. So I was actually going to say, if anyone wants to learn about climate optimism, save yourself $25. And <laughs> instead of picking up this book, go watch 2040, my favorite movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Because like, yeah, I just, I was like, okay, I've, 2040 did this already and did it better, you know? Like, yeah. 
I mean, I think there's there's space for there to be multiple products. Some people are book people. Some people are movie people. So you give lots of options. There's certainly no shortage of space for climate change information out there. And I think if I was like newer to climate change as an issue, some of this stuff would have been really interesting for me. For me, none of the examples were particularly new, I don't think. But, you know, if you're coming at it from a sense that like, Climate change is all about making gas more expensive and making it harder for you to afford to get from place A to place B. This book gives you some good advice on how, you know, governments could be doing a better job. I don't know. I feel very lukewarm about it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty hot about it. I, (laughs) which is weird. Normally I come in and I'm like, I liked the book. And then you're like, meh, it was, it could be fixed. So this is very unusual for us. (laughs) I mean, I didn't like the book. Um, I will be real. (laughs) Particularly, I agree with you. The last half really dragged. Um, I will be honest. I skimmed it while I was watching my sister's convocation ceremony. It did not require a lot of my attention. It doesn't. No, like I like I would skim. I was skimming as well. So like anyone who's like a huge fan of this book might come up and be like, well, you missed his point then because you weren't even reading it properly. But mm, I don't think that's the case. (laughs) You know what? I gave it a good college try for the first half. But at a certain point, I would not have finished this book if we weren't doing an episode on it. So Uh, yeah, I agree. I don't know. He's also like uh, he's been writing on climate for like. 20 years and he's based in Calgary and yeah I just I was reading I was getting some like some like real libertarian vibes off of this like oh really I was like this guy votes for the liberal party of Canada that's <laughs> that was the vibe I got from this guy <laughs> I don't know it just felt like he's like oh you can plug in your car at night and get money from the system by like recharging the grid and it's like what the fuck what that like I mean, you can if you're upper middle class. That's a great argument for climate action, Kyla. Like, <laughs> well, so here's the other thing um, about like the idea of like, like he did mention transit a few times, but mostly he was talking about how like there's going to be an electric car in every driveway, and like he doesn't mention at all the fact that like minerals are like destroying the planet and like that like he just he has all these solutions that he's like look at how great this is and then never actually like points out why it's still problematic which I guess is kind of my my problem because he's telling everyone it's okay to like continue to consume in the way that we are as long as we are consuming from an electrified grid that was one of the big problems of the book it's sort of I mean We've talked about this in previous book episodes. Not every book needs to be about everything. So this book wasn't really about equity and climate change. It didn't really have to tackle the class crisis, but it did end up feeling very incomplete because it didn't, um, because most of its solutions were pitched to preserving the comfortable consumption of middle and upper class Canadians, which is fine. My other problem with it was just that it it really sort of pitched a continued slow paced action when, you know, we have tried. This is something that Naomi Klein points out in her 2014 book that we're going to look at next. But like we have tried incrementalism, uh, she says, for 20 years. It's been a decade since her book came out. It's been 30 years. The results are disastrous. (laughs) (laughs) So we we really do need to pick up the pace. and at this point, like, there do need to be much bigger changes down the pipeline. That doesn't mean that, like, action can't happen. 
But it does mean that it's not just going to be limited to like, you eventually get your electric plug-in car and problem solved. There are many other transformational shifts that need to happen. Yeah. And like carbon taxes were his other big solution. And I was like, my man. (laughs) Yeah. I was reading research a while back that the OECD did. And they found that like carbon taxes, I think it was like a 7% decrease. (laughs) It's not like carbon prices are a very small part of the solution. They can help. But a lot of what they do also is create uneven costs. And you can fix that with revenue recycling mechanisms. But on their own, what they really do is they're a tax on like the lower and middle classes. And they're also like punitive actions that don't improve people's lives. So they're one of the most unpopular climate policies. And so while I agree that a carbon price or a carbon tax is a really good part of a climate action package, it cannot be the centerpiece because it just makes people feel like they're getting hit with sticks. You know, it's not great. Yeah. And his whole point, he's like, oh, and if you ask for, like people in BC, like 47 percent um, only like they're the only ones who know that they even have a carbon tax here. And I'm like, OK, great. So people f- forget that it exists. I don't see how that like is supposed to win people over. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that is also like that data has changed. Some of the earliest um The political science department that I was a part of did some research on this. And like in the very early implementation of the the carbon tax, people didn't really know what it was. It wasn't people that like there was this interesting puzzle. It was like, this is not unpopular in the same way as other taxes are. Why? But that has since changed (laughs) because we had a whole political fight over it. Um, So I think... I think he may be working from some out-of-date information, which is fair because climate change stuff moves really fast and it takes like three years to publish a book, but nevertheless. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> no shade on him for that. I definitely wasn't like picking st- – like I wasn't like picking at like his his data or anything like that. I took most of his numbers. I'm like, yeah, you're a journalist. This is probably true. Yeah. But like the points around them where I was like, ah, we're just landing on this on different areas of, from the same data – I did. Okay. So not to just sit here and shit on some person's book that he spent like a ton of time on and like probably like, it's fine. It's a fine book. And I'm sorry if you're listening that I started out so hot against it. I really don't like being mean to strangers. Yeah. It's yeah. Positives of this book. It is well-researched, did not have major fact issues. It was fundamentally fairly harmless. Um, I would say bordering on slightly helpful, depending on who it goes to. I just like not for me. Yeah. Like I would say the first half, um, there was a few things I actually really liked. So I'm going to share some of the things I liked um, so that that it's not just me being like a grumpy butt the whole time. So I actually, uh, there was a part that I really liked where he was talking about like how incremental change actually can be used uh, to change people, like to change society's views on something as a whole. So like subsidizing people putting solar panels on their roofs. And hey, sorry, breaking news. Olivia Chow just won the mayoral election. Oh, that's so nice. I was hoping for Chloe Brown. She's been showing up in my in my uh, TikTok feed. I think she's cool. Um, I like that land reform is making a comeback, but (laughs) she really did not have much of a shot. Olivia Chow is like a great outcome. Good job, Toronto. I don't live in Toronto. I live in Vancouver. So I only know about the TikTok popular one. (laughs) 
but I, I believe you that it's a great that it's great news. Yay! <laughs> it could have been so much worse, Kyla. So much. Oh, worse. I know. Oh, I bet. <laughs> I bet. Was Doug Ford? No. Uh, no. There was like the deputy mayor was running and had John Tory's endorsement, and then like the former chief of police. Those were like the next two front runners. So Olivia Chow, great outcome. <laughs> okay, well, good for you, Toronto. Look at that. We broke news on this podcast, although it's not coming out until it'll be very stale. But <laughs> Okay, so this part that I was talking about is that, like, basically there was a, an initiative to get, like, solar panels on 100,000 roofs. And the idea is that, like, the person with the solar panel it now has is, like, invested in the green energy plan because, you know, they're... They bought in and their neighbors are seeing this and they're like, oh, like that seems really cool. Maybe I'll be in on it. And the idea is like by the time uh, the conventional energy industry in Germany knew it was under full scale attack, the battle would almost like would be mostly won is like the point that he's making. And I'm like, I actually really liked that. I really liked that point. It's a good point. But I think better than like that approach to solar, New York has a cool program where basically there are these community solar projects. And if you're a low-income person in New York, you can put in an application to, for free, subscribe to one of these projects, and then you get the money from their solar project. You don't pay any money into it. Oh, that's cool. That is a much more equitable way to take that approach. Yeah, no, I like that. But I mean, any approach, I think, that includes people at a mass scale in yes. a way where they feel like they are committing anyways. And then and then you come out and you're like, okay, everyone, we're attacking the traditional energy sources. Then it's like, yeah, everyone's already on board. So I was like, that's a good point. Yes. And I do like, I mean, we've shit on this book a little bit, but I think making the point that initiatives like this are life improving, like it is such a fundamental argument to make. And I, I do think that this book does it pretty well. There's some things at the back end where I mean, he 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 takes shots at like other authors as well. Like he he calls out Naomi Klein and uh, yeah, David Wallace Wells. Yes, thank you, David Wallace Wells, for like being like too negative. And it's like, look, man, like, <laughs> everyone has a wheelhouse. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like David Wallace Wells, his book Uninhabitable Earth was like life changing for me. Um, but it's also terrifying, like objectively. It's also terrifying. And like, this guy's not the first person to critique him for being maybe a little doomerist, you know? Yeah. But I also think like it's really valuable because if if we're only getting like, oh, we'll electrify our grid and like everything's going really fast now and it's okay. And, you know, like there is a place for climate optimism, obviously, because if we all feel like everything's hopeless, then nobody does anything. But there's also like going too far in that direction and people not realizing how bad things are and how much we need to do. Yeah. Like if this were the 1990s and you wanted to write a book that was just like, let's put some solar panels on roofs and let's get some EVs. I'd be like, yeah, that's great. We can have this nice slow transition that's comfortable for everyone. But that's not where we're at, bros. No. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, just today in Ottawa, we had not only 10 plus wildfire smoke day, not only did we also have hail, but we also had a tornado warning. <laughs> Shit's not normal over here. <laughs> oh, man. There, there are things in this book that I liked about it. But they're all stuff that's been made in other books. Like, I don't know. 
One of the things I really liked about this book is that it talks about the climate crisis as like, and our response to it as like a new Marshall Plan. I personally think that is one of the best analogies in terms of like how we can actually go forward because the Marshall Plan was this sort of historic investment from the United States to rebuild Europe and and also to like rebuild some other strategically important areas. And it, it was pretty unique in a historical context. And we also often just forget about like Western Europe was not okay after the Second World War. And the Marshall Plan in a very big way contributed to rebuilding those societies and did so in a way that like built up the welfare state and it, it built sort of like unprecedented levels of equity. And I think a lot of the prosperity that you see in Western Europe is, I mean, not entirely, but a lot of it is linked to the investment at the right time when Europe was rebuilding. And if we could do something like that globally for climate change, it would be fantastic. <laughs> I really <laughs> like that. I really like that analogy. But like, yeah. he's not the first person, like this is an argument people have been making since at least 2009, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I did really like uh, just the, a little thing that I, I highlighted in the book that I just got you. He, he lives in Calgary and he's like, oh, I see Teslas everywhere in Calgary, which you never would like have thought a few years ago, which is true and is really cool. I actually did really like the way that he pointed out how he's because he's been reporting on this stuff for 20 years. And he's like, oh, in 2007, they said that solar panels would take this long to become this cheap. And it actually only took like three years. And so we've been underestimating forever. And I'm like, sure, but we've also been underestimating how bad the climate crisis is. So, you know, like... Not that I want to be a pessimist or anything, but it's like, yeah, it's not the only thing that we're underestimating. Yeah. And we're still not reading. Our, we're still not like meeting our climate targets or anything like that. So yes, like from a techno optimist perspective, we've been outpacing the frontier of change that we thought was possible. And that's awesome. But like from a political will <laughs> point of view, we're real behind. <laughs> and he does talk about that, too. Specifically to call out the Teslas in Calgary, he he saw a vanity plate that said L O L O I L, so lol oil, and I was like, that's a fantastic vanity plate for a Tesla in Calgary <laughs> to have. So I just wanted to shout out that person. <laughs> Do you have a favorite vanity plate you've ever seen? Um, I saw one once that was uh con, so it was like, <laughs> like like the you know like when when. The captain of the oh, like like Khan. Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a huge Star Trek. Uh, I'm not like I a, was like, was this person a grifter? <laughs> but anyways, I saw that years ago, and it was a reference that I vaguely understood, and I thought that I was like, that's actually that's just cute. If you're gonna have a vanity plate, at least be nerdy about it. <laughs> that's a great one. <laughs> what about you? Uh, there is a vanity plate that I still think about from time to time. It quite simply said, go mumps. And I don't know whether they were cheering for the mumps, but I saw it at a time <laughs> when there was a mumps outbreak in Edmonton. <laughs> so. oh. oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> oh, I also highlighted a quote that it felt like he was calling out you and I specifically, Kristen. I was like, oh my God, this book is about us. And the quote is, 
Of course, climate solutions are hard sells. No one wants everything they do every damn day put under that kind of scrutiny. And no one wants to spend that much of their day thinking about process. And I was like, um, excuse me, Kristen and I do. (laughs) (laughs) But he's right. Like, that's (laughs) like, it's like, as, as people who did like a podcast that kind of was centered around the idea of like consumer ethics for a few years, like it is exhausting. And I now am like still exhausted every time I go into a new store and I'm like, okay, which peanut butter am I going to buy? You know, like this one has better ingredients, but it's in a plastic jug and this one is in a glass jug, but doesn't like, I can just tell it's going to taste like terrible. Like, (laughs) Yeah. My thing with that is like, you either give up Like that's option A or option B is you push for collective solutions, which isn't really what this book is pitching. So he's kind of just like being like, hey, you know, who's not fun at parties, vegans, (laughs) which is a crowd pleaser. Like no one's going to get mad at you for that joke. (laughs) Even vegans are like, yeah, we get it. It's a bummer. But like, wouldn't it be great if society was on our side, like instead of (laughs) us being the butt of jokes, right? Like, And we know from polls that like 85% of you agree that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that like, yeah. And and the idea is that like, oh, it's really hard to think about process every day. It's like, okay, so why don't we demand better so that we don't have to individually be making these decisions? Like there should not be a chocolate bar on my shelf that was made using forced labor. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> but like, again, he doesn't, he just, he just talks about like, meh, climate activists are a bummer, aren't they? And it's like, oh, well, yeah, but. Oh, and yet another one of these takes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's probably <laughs> why I got, I was like, I just found myself rolling my eyes. Yes. Every single climate activist is Lisa from The Simpsons. We know. <laughs> but we love Lisa. Like, I don't know. I've never met anyone who doesn't love Lisa. <laughs> oh, he also quotes Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like, twice. And also, he he quotes, like, another really old movie at one point. Or uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And I was like, has this guy seen a movie since like the early 2000s (laughs) that movie who framed roger rabbit is like a fever dream to me i still don't fundamentally understand the plot (laughs) i am like i i i've been actually thinking about rewatching it and because i haven't seen it since i was a kid and i rewatched the mask recently and was shocked by how good it still is and because i was like oh no jim carrey movies don't tend to hold up because i'm thinking like ace ventura is not something that i want to rewatch again i feel like the grinch is still fine but <laughs> yeah, the, Gr- the Grinch is still fine. The Grinch is delightful. Um, but like I went into the mask thinking like, oh, it's probably going to be like horrific. But it's actually great. And everyone should rewatch the mask. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Oh, yeah. So here's here's a quote. This is uh, halfway through the book. This is when I started getting annoyed. The car as power broker, it's fuel as profit. And I was Kristen's like <laughs> rolling her eyes. Oh, like it's the, and like the quotes that I just mentioned, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like you're right. Like this book is for the suburban Calgarian like boomers, and it's like I don't. Do we need to pander to them? Like, yeah, yeah, Kyla, because they are the voting block that most prevents climate action from happening. So ah, uh, you're right. Do I hate a lot of what's in this book? Yeah. Do <laughs> I think it's good that this book exists? Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. And so, so then he goes on to say, like, 
The reason I find this value proposition compelling is because it flips the climate solutions conversation. Instead of talking about a disaster to be averted, a crisis to flee from, a shifting away from a dire situation into one that is marginally less bad, this value proposition speaks to an opportunity to be seized, a more desirable way to do things, an enhanced quality of life, a moving toward a much better world, which I fully agree with, except for his example of like using your car as like to get profit for yourself. I'm like, no, you're you're so close to the point. Yeah. You're so close to the point. The other thing is like, this was what the fucking Leap Manifesto was, except with more radical policies. So it's like, this is the exact same argument. You get transformative climate change. Ah. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, so this is probably a good gateway book, I guess, which is what we were saying about Waste Free World. It's like fine, it's fine as a gateway book, but it cannot be where you stop. (laughs) Yeah, and I do like that it takes arguments that are very common in climate circles and it frames them in ways that are palatable for people who would describe themselves as apolitical or moderate. That's good. You know, we need climate books that speak to every part of the political spectrum. Yeah, and I mean... This will get into somebody's hands that, like, our podcast wouldn't. You know what I mean? So, fine, I guess. Yeah. I would say if you listen to the podcast fairly regularly, you probably don't need to read this book. Uh, (laughs) Go out and buy a great displacement instead. (laughs) I was literally, Kristen, get out of my mind. I was like, if you're trying to convert somebody to your cause as well, like, this isn't a, like... You, as our listener, don't buy this for someone else. Go buy them The Great Displacement and be like, oh, wow, I really care about you. And if you care about me, you'll read this book. (laughs) That is interesting, though, because I think The Great Displacement is a big downer of a book. It's a really important book. Super glad I read it. I think everyone should read it. But it doesn't provide the same, like, hopeful narrative as this book does. No. So instead, people should gift The Great Displacement. And then and then as soon as they're done as a reward for reading the book, you should sit down and watch 2040 with them. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> but as for other books, yeah, I actually don't, I can't think of another one that I would recommend that isn't kind of a bummer. So, I mean, I I see that there is like a vacuum in the book world for a book like this. And so that's why I was so excited to read it. I was so excited to read it because I was like, there are so many things to be optimistic and excited about. Collective change. And like, what if we took care of the most vulnerable people in our societies? But instead he's like, what if you plugged your car into the grid and it gave you money? And it's like, oh my goodness. I would say like, if you're looking for an optimistic book about climate change and you're already sort of on board with the whole climate change is real and urgent. The End of This World, uh, it's an edited volume by a bunch of authors in so-called Canada. That's a really good one. It offers lots of solutions and ways that we could create a more caring society. Beyond that, I mean, I well, TBD, let's see what we think about This Changes Everything because it is pitched as a solutions book, but it is also like 500 pages long. Yeah, I'm 60 (laughs) pages into it, though, and I already am like super excited about it, even though I was a little worried because I'm like, we're reading a book that's like a decade old, like it's going to be out of date. And in a lot of ways, it is because it's talking a lot about like the discourse at the time, which was very much like, is climate change even real? And thank God we've like moved past that for the most part. So like, it's actually really exciting to read her book and see where it was at back then and be like, oh, things are getting better. So I actually am finding it really hopeful, too. (laughs) Oh, really? I mean, we'll talk about it more when we've read the whole thing, but I'm finding it really depressing. She keeps predicting things and I'm like, yeah, that is what happened. 
Oh, well, you're much further into it than I am, surely. Like, I'm only 60 pages in. So I'm like, I'm past the intro and like through chapter one, maybe. So we'll see how I feel later. We'll talk about it. Um, no, I like I like in this book, he does actually talk about like a bunch of different like things that people are doing. Uh, like he he loves Denmark. He loves Denmark. And he talks about all the cool things that they're doing, which is great. But Denmark is and he says this himself. Denmark is a very small island. <laughs> like and like, yes, all of this stuff is really neat. And it, it probably will scale very quickly because there is a vested interest that is growing by the year. Thank goodness. Like all of this is very, very hopeful. So if this book was like 70 pages shorter, I think that I would have liked it more. There's like, I don't know if this was like an editor's note he got or what, but there's like lots of him just describing what he's doing. Like he's like, I, I was riding a bike and then I stopped to eat a sandwich. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, like I, I get it. You're trying to like make this a more engaging book, I guess. But I, I don't know. Like, I don't need to know you had a sandwich. Yeah. Like I sometimes find it helpful when authors put themselves in the book but they need to do it in a way that's relevant to the narrative. Like for anyone who's read We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Foer, it is very much him like meditating with himself. And he talks about his family history a fair amount, but in a way that's actually helpful for the narrative of the book. Whereas this just feels like, I don't know, he journaled while he was researching and decided to throw that in there. Yeah, which again, like will probably appeal to the like readers who he's targeting. Like, that's fine. He's like, look, I'm a person. You should trust me. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. That's fine. I'm just nitpicking. But I did like that he included some like activism sort of ideas. Like he talked a little bit about tactical urbanism, which is like the idea that people kind of just go out and fix their roads on their own without waiting for the city to do it. So people will pop up like stop signs at intersections where they think they need them or they'll like paint crosswalks on the road and stuff like that. And uh, he he dances around the idea of collective action. And so I'm like, oh, you're so close. Just go a little further. But I, I guess like that's not who this is for. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so I was like, I was like willing to be like, so this is what made me come out so hot at the beginning of the podcast. Where I was like, I hated it, um, which I, I don't use the word hate very often because my dad, when I was a kid, was like, hate is a four letter word. And I was like, what? Really? So like... <laughs> It's like a strong word. Um, so I take it back. I didn't hate it. But the thing that really lost me that made me so hot to come out at the beginning is like this part where he talks about like at the very end that like climate crisis is a planetary in scale and solving it comes with an obligation of universality that makes addressing social justice issues extremely complicated. And all of that's true. And so he's talking about like climate movement in, in general and like how they're trying to address it. And this this quote in particular that he says, I find it hard to argue from available evidence that the global energy transition can also be a global fix for problems that have haunted human civilization for much, if not all, of its existence. And this made me so angry because look at like indigenous culture, like just you live in Canada, look at indigenous culture, like how dare you say that all of human existence has had these like problems of like top down governance. Like, <laughs> so that part is like what really upset me. He has like, a, he has like a paragraph about indigenous relations, which is like, it's a decent paragraph, but like, you've written a whole book about climate solutions, and you you've not even talked about indigenous solutions. And then to say that like, human civilization has always had like problems of inequity. It's like false. It's just wrong. I'm reading right now uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, 
Capital and Ideology, which is all about the history of how inequality has been justified across societies and across history. And I think what that book really is making clear in my mind is, is that like these regimes are different and the ideologies that we set up to justify inequality actually have a really strong material impact on what the inequalities are. So to that extent, because I, I feel like the quote that you mentioned is him just waving away the argument that we can't address capitalism with climate change. We have to sort of parcel them out. But really, there are two problems that are fundamentally tethered together. Yeah. And it just, what cheeses me off about these kinds of arguments is like, there's a faux intellectualism to this glib dismissal of what is actually a very fundamental argument about the causes of climate change. It's just like those silly leftists Let's deal with these two really big problems. They've been around forever. But if you see climate change as being fundamentally linked to the extractivism of our economic system and our inability to solve the problems as being tethered to the fact that we've allowed wealth concentration that makes governments unable to do anything, then you can't. And to pretend that like activists are silly for trying to make that argument is offensive and it annoys me and fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that's, so this is, this came in like right at the end of the book. So that's where it's like, until that point I was basically like, fine, I guess. And so I was getting like more and more kind of like, eh, this book isn't really so. And then I got to that one section where he's just, he's dismissing it in the most like colonial Western sort of way where it's just like, well, capitalism's always existed. And it's like, what? That's not, <laughs> like, that's not what he's saying. No, it really hasn't. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, it's very, it's it's just, it's missing such a big point. Um, and it's also like sending the message that like, you should care about the energy transition exclusively uh, so that we can keep the status quo. And if we bother to dream bigger, it's going to derail the energy transition. So like stop thinking about how we could make society better because we should be focusing on electrifying the grid. And that just, oh. Yeah, and it's understandable. Like, so a few years ago when Extinction Rebellion was sort of, it had its moment in Canada and then it kind of died. But when it was on the rise in Canada, I, I had joined and was involved with it. And one of the first evolutions that I had to sort of go through in my mind was just the mission statement because one of the arguments that was being made by the movement was essentially that you had to sort of solve democracy in order to solve climate change. And for me, I thought that's how, how do we possibly do that? (laughs) We already have like a really hard challenge. Why add another challenge onto it? And so I think his argument is sort of playing in that same space. Um, And it's a reasonable approach to take. Having said that, now that I have read many more books on climate change and thought about it for a few years, I've sort of come around to the perspective that it really, it is, we need to resituate participatory democracy. And that doesn't need to necessarily look like electoral reform, although it totally could, but it can also look like citizens' assemblies or even, you know, deep canvassing and organizing in the workplace. It it looks like non-electoral democracy as well. But until we can sort of reposition people power 
the elites are the ones that are served by the fossil fuel industry, and they are not saving us from this crisis, have not been, have had a very significant amount of time to do so. So there needs to be sort of bottom-up pressure. And in order for that to work, there needs to be like a repositioning of equity in our society. And I think that has to come from everyday activities of just regular people. Um, So like contacting your representatives, going out to protests, talking to your neighbors about climate change, whatever that ends up being for you. But I think arguments like what he was making are really misguided. Yeah, I think that's a really I think that's a really excellent way to put it, Kristen. Thank you for articulating so well why I was so frustrated when I was reading this poem. What a kind way to say thanks for ranting. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should end on Kristen's fabulous uh, call to collective action, but there's just like one more thing on, <laughs> on this particular, it's like literally like a paragraph later after that very upsetting quote that I read, where basically he, he's, he's trying to explain himself and justify what he had just said, which is to say, if there is a climate justice argument to be made about solar energy projects, it's meaningless without cheap solar panels. And cheap solar panels rely on the operations of systems, industries, and whole economies that are not now and may never be entirely fair, equitable, just, and free. And I just wrote, wow, that's pretty pessimistic for a book about optimism. What a weird thing to put at the very end. (laughs) Yeah, it's really true. Yeah, this whole thing's about optimism. Let's be optimistic that we can also deal with economic justice. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like he's like, oh, our systems aren't equitable and fair and they pro- like maybe they never will be. So why? So so like what? So why bother trying to make them so? Because we should focus on the climate crisis. Why can't we do both? Like, why does it have to be one or the other? This is like how to be a climate technocrat. This isn't how to be a climate optimist because it's really a narrow view of society. It's all technological solutions, the whole thing. Like, none of it is, like, the collective action or scaling back or degrowth doesn't come up at all. Like, this is why I was like, oh, it just feels like a really, like, capitalist argument, which is, like, you can have your cake and eat it, too, which is, like, weird. If I have cake, I want to eat it. So it's a bad example. But, like... (laughs) But it's just... It just seemed, like, really pessimistic. It just felt like, yeah, like, kind of a bummer, Basically saying, like, well, we can't have cheap solar panels without the global economy being as terrible as it is right now. And it's like, I I guess that's sort of true. But like, should it be that way? Like, like maybe what you're missing, like the point you're missing there is like, why should people have to suffer so that you can have a Tesla in your garage, right? Like, I I don't understand. Like, that's where the disconnect really came for me. And it's right at the end of the book, which is why I came in so hot at the beginning, where I was like, what the hell? Like, (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I I was kind of on board with the book at the start. And near the end, it kind of fell off the rails for me a bit. But I did like the value proposition that he outlined. I think that was near the end of the book. And I did enjoy the way that that he ended it. Um, So maybe, maybe I can steal from that. This is like literally the last page of the book. He's talking about like what the sales pitch for climate change should be. Quote, that sales pitch, a little more to life somewhere else, a level of luxury once known only to kings, that can win. Trust me, that can win. And I did kind of like that as an ending. Again, there's some class issues we could maybe dig into. Is it realistic to think that we can all live as kings or is he really pitching that to an upper middle class? 
But I really do think this book gave me a way to talk to centrists about more like equitable climate policies and why why programs that give things to the people who are worst off are actually a really good approach for climate change and and maybe an essential part of the puzzle. So for me, this book was really valuable in building that bridge in my head, but I don't think that was really the intended output of the books. Look, it's a book. It's fine. If people have already read it and liked it, you know, we all have different opinions and I value yours. I would tell you to come at us on Twitter, but I'm not I'm not on Twitter anymore. And you have to like sign in to Twitter to see tweets anymore. And so like I don't want to sign in when I'm at work and I don't want to sign in when I'm on my phone cuz I don't know what my password is. So I'm like, well, I'm just I guess I'm just not on Twitter anymore." <laughs> like just holler at Kyla through Pullback's Instagram page. <laughs> yeah, I do check that sporadically. <laughs> because I, like, don't have access to my personal account. My friends send me, like, just regular memes through that one. So I do I do check in once in a while because it's the only way people can reach me. <laughs> we also have a Facebook page. If you're a boomer and you love this book, you want to tell us why. <laughs> oh, yeah. Get us on Facebook, baby. <laughs> Love it. Okay, great. Well, ch- uh, check in with us in a couple of weeks when we will have finished reading Naomi Klein's gargantuan tome that I'm enjoying. So fingers crossed that it continues to be enjoyable for the next like 1,200,000 pages. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye.